Okay, and we are live. Probably been live for a couple seconds. But, <coughs> welcome back to DM Talks. This is number five, which is awesome. Hope you guys are enjoying it. I know we've been enjoying it. Uh, this time it's going to be a little bit shorter, and just between the two of us, a lot of the other DMs that we asked could not make it today. So, you can start with your question, and then I can uh, follow up since I'm usually the last one anyway. Uh, yeah. Well, um, well, the only thing I can come up with in on the spot was, is simply, what is your favorite class and why? Favorite class? I really like the rogue, because I just love being sneaky and assassinating everybody. That's like, <coughs> just the most fun. But I've been enjoying a... Fighter, Barbarian mix. That's been a lot of fun. But yeah. Probably those two. Yeah. Uh, I don't really enjoy the fighter as much. I do enjoy the amount of um, Attack? attacks that the fighter gets. Other than that, though, I don't enjoy most of their stuff. I feel like most of their subclasses are just kind of nerfed too much. And could be better. They could be, but they do a lot of damage. Just because they have so many hits. Yes, exactly. So, simple question. Yeah, my favorite's probably Wizard. Um, I just like the... Versatility. Specifically Evocation and Reconstruction. Just because I feel like a lot of people overuse Fireball when they're using Sorcerer or any other type of Wizard. Or at least they make jokes about using it a lot. And really, Fireball is a terrible spell. It really is. Lightning is a lot more direct precise. and precise. Like, people keep using Fireball just because it's cool sounding, but in all reality, unless you're an evocation or reconstruction wizard, it's not useful. <laughs> um, but devastating. the benefits of being evocation and reconstruction allows allowing you at least for reconstruction at level 10 um to make it so you miss specific targets and kill them if you're reconstruction you kill those specific targets that you purposely missed which is very convenient when you're fighting a big dragon and then you're able to um damage the dragon a lot or any creature really and then kill your party at the same time very convenient very convenient. I would never play a reconstruction with it. That's just too far. I can't get in close with that. <coughs> but you can. If I ever played a wizard, it would probably be a conjuration wizard. But I'd be an assassin. I just feel like... It would be a weird mix, but I'd just get in there, conjure my blade, stab the person, and get out. I guess it kind of works. It would mostly be for role-playing. I would not Metamax with that. That would just be stupid. <laughs> I don't think I could Metamax a wizard. I've tried, though. <laughs> okay. I just succeed on accident. Yes. No kidding. So, my question we brought up earlier <coughs> is immunities and resistance in anti-magic build. Because you have... Like, the Lich, who's immune to all damage that isn't magical. 
then you have the vampires who are resistant to all non-magical attacks. You also have like demons and lycanthropy where they are resistant and immune. So where is the line for what is, what's the word, nullified in an anti-magic build? Because if, with a lich, I've looked this up, and there was a couple people that had a discussion online where they said that a lich but stupid cannot take damage in an anti-magic build. Unless the roof caves in on them, then he takes damage. Or if you push him off a cliff, then he'll take damage. But both of those are bludgeoning damage. And so in the stat block, it says he is immune to bludgeoning damage. So it really wouldn't hurt him. But I feel like in an anti-magic build, he should be able to be damaged by non-magical things. <clears throat> so once again, it really comes down to DM's discretion. But in my mind, logically speaking, it really just has to do with the creation of the creature, where they come from. Um, for example, the Lich's case, we know that the Lich is through a ritual and a ninth level spell um, altered um, to be able to gain that power of being immortal and being able to come back from the dead, basically. So, in the end, his power and his immunities and his undeath is still considered, or can be considered, magic. It's not like a curse from a god or something that um, is, yeah, created that way. He's not really, he's not quite artifact grade. Yeah, we talked about how artifacts are immune to the anti-magic field. Like, they are still able to use all of their abilities except cast the spells that it usually gives people when you're attuned to it. So we came to the conclusion that if they are imbued with so much magic, that that's what makes them immune to things, that it would be nullified. If not, just reduced to like a resistance instead of an immunity. So things like liches would lose their immunities because it is literally their magic making a bubble around their body that doesn't allow anything except magic to come through. But things like a vampire... Oh, actually, I just had a thought. One second, let me grab a book. So in the Dungeon of the Mad Mage, let me double check this, but I want to say that the... Um, big bad evil guy as people like to call them, is, uh, let's see, yeah, he is resistant to, uh, that is through a magic item, though. He's resistant to fire and lightning. Um, so his would be nullified. Never mind. But I feel like it's just pretty much a spell of invulnerability. Like, it just imbued into the lich, pretty much. On a smaller level, but expanded over time. Yes. It's like a permanent version that isn't as overpowered. Yes. And so it's like, his would be, but a vampire, 
they wouldn't lose their resistance because it is just in their nature to be resistant to those. And people. it's a curse. And it's a curse. And most curses, if given by a deity of sorts, does not is not taken away. So like lycanthropy, they will still be cursed inside of an anti-magic field. Same goes for dragons. They're not... A lot of people talk about how dragons are super magical creatures, and it depends on the world, really. But in Dungeons and Dragons, for the most part, they're not considered super magical. They're just very powerful creatures and quite deadly. And in an anti-magic field, they're still a dragon. They still have their claws, their teeth, their scales, and can still breathe fire. And are resistant to whatever damage they are. Immune. Oh, they're immune. Never mind. They're immune. But yeah, like, if they have magic, and that's what seems to be protecting them, I would say the anti-magic field does nullify that. But if it's not magic and it's just their normal, everyday existence, then I would say it has no effect. Mm -hmm. But up to DM's discretion, a lot of people would argue that no... If, an, if a lich is in an anti-magic field, he cannot be damaged, period. Which I think is a little ridiculous, to be completely honest. Because that's a lot of magic in one being to not be damaged. So, that was our discussion on that. I thought of another question. Um, let me see if I can think of it. Did you have something else? Oh, I was just going to go over to Merlin's questions over on uh, our Facebook page. Um, <clears throat> one of them is, feats, when do you allow them as an, it is an optional rule? So for me, whenever I'm DMing, I always allow feats to be used. Um, I think they're fun and make the game more interesting. Um... Really, just I use the same optional rule as the player's handbook suggests them to be used in, and, and that is whenever you're able to do an ability score improvement, you're able to take a feat as well. I also use or, the, or as feet. well. Yeah. Um, I also use the optional rule of downtime learning, which um, is found in one of the Xanthar's guides, or Lost Notes, one of the two. And it talks about how you can spend downtime and a number of weeks equals to 10 minus your uh, intelligence modifier to learn a new skill or um, a new language, pretty much, which still falls under your skill sec section. But not a character sheet. Just no, a not, skill not your or language. But yeah, I love the feats. Um, it definitely gives it, you can use it for a role play path, but I, whenever I go with feats, I always go for metamaxing. I love using those because it's like, yes, you can up your skills and your scores, but just being able to hit more and hit harder is just way more fun. <clears throat> so I enjoy this, the feats. I would suggest it. There is that optional rule where every time you level up, you have to spend a certain amount of time 
to learn the different feats that you've gained in the level. I never play with that because it just would be too much downtime and my characters are always fighting. <laughs> yeah, and it, most of, for the most part, neither of us are very good at using downtime. Um, I just find it kind of boring. It, is, it does have its uses. Um, when I do use downtime, it normally ends up being more of a cave. After this session, since we've just gotten back into town, we're going to take a certain number of weeks. Just tell me, like, think about it through the week before we meet again, and then tell me when we get back together what your character did during their downtime so that we can roleplay that out the next session. And I don't normally spend much of a session on it, just like, a, almost like an opening scene. Okay, this is what you did for this number of weeks, and then we're going to go back into the fun part. <laughs> yes. And sometimes when you've got no downtime, like in our um, campaign, where it's just constantly one thing after another, where they could take downtime, but they have that time pressure to keep going. So that was really like off track, but <clears throat> we do enjoy feats. I do suggest them because it gives your player, your character, more options. Especially if you're a wizard wielding a glaive and you don't get to add your proficiency bonus and your strength is two. So you're, you've got an attack of two and no proficiency bonus. I would suggest the weapons master or whatever it's called. Mm -hmm. <coughs> okay, so there's that one. Did you think of your next question? No, I didn't think of another one. Oh, okay, fine. It, it, it flew from me. Oh, okay. We'll go to the next one then. Short rests. This is also from Merlin. How can a DM plan them, and how can players use them? Honestly, I never plan for short rests. Neither do I. Normally, I just leave it up to the players, because really a short rest isn't something that the DM initiates, or in my mind, he shouldn't. He shouldn't be telling the players, okay, you guys are low on health, you should take a short rest. Instead, the players should look at their character sheets and be like, okay, we just had a big fight, and we need to find a place to rest, we need to recover hit points. For a warlock, I need to recover spell slots, also for wizards. Um, and so really, it should be up to the players to plan out when they want to take that rest. Really, it's just the DM who has to roll with that and decide... The one thing that the DM can do, though, is look in advance, okay, these are going to be some, like, these few fights are going to be pretty hard on my players. They're probably going to want to take a short rest. What am I going to do about that? I've, I've uh, played through several pre-made um, campaigns, and a lot of the time in dungeon settings, it'll talk about um, scenarios of if a if the party was to stay in one area for longer periods of time, for example, taking a short rest, which is a period of an hour, it'll give you a random table to roll on on scenarios that could happen. Some of those could be literally nothing happens, and others, it'll have uh, really bad consequences, like a whole giant party showing up, and then you have to deal with either avoiding combat or initiating in combat, but without the benefits of taking your full short rest. 
Yeah. Whenever I am planning a session, I will kind of map out the timeline. And so if at any point in that timeline, they take a short rest, it's like, okay, one hour, this much has happened. So then they go back into it, and an hour has passed in that timeline. And so if somebody's looking for them, that gives them a whole hour to look for them. Whereas if they're on the move, they would never find them. And so, yes, it is up to the players. And yes, it keeps the DM on their toes. There's been some sessions where I have this whole plan, and then they're like, you know what? We've already taken a short rest. We're going to take a long rest. And it's like, you guys woke up like three hours ago. <laughs> but they really need this long rest. So they barricade themselves in a room and take a long rest. And it's like, okay, where on this timeline is it going to pick back up? And uh, you guys have... Yeah, you guys have reached that part where that, that whole scenario where the Dro Raiders came in to that village, I had that plan for them to be in the village taking a long rest that night. But they weren't in the village. They were down in the... Um, the lair. And so it's like, okay, they come, they took all the people. And so sometimes you just have to be ready for short rest and long rest to come out of nowhere. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. And in a lot of quests, we don't even use short rest. Sometimes we even forget that they exist. Sometimes it's like, okay, time for a long rest. It's like, we can take a short rest. Oh yeah, we can do that. <laughs> I feel like that comes out of the way of, that we started playing D&D with less roleplay. And I think that's where short rest come into handy is more of a roleplay based world yeah. where um, you're actually more a part of the world and less just like running around killing big monsters and then hiding. That is true. Um... The next one, how do you coordinate character builds between yourself, other players, and the DM? This one is interesting. So, I love using themed parties. Um, They're way too powerful. They are. So, um, I, I don't think a lot of people realize this, but the Wizards of the Coast have accidentally built their game this game or I guess updated the game to this point where if you were to theme your party after a certain theme my personal favorite is Radiance so if you theme your party after Radiance you have the Sun Soul Sorcerer you have any cleric you have paladin. the Reconstruction Wizard you have a Paladin you have the Divine Herald Rogue um, I believe there's a form of Barbarian as well the uh Think of the word. There's a form of barbarian. There's the <coughs> assassin. The uh, yeah. Yeah, that one. Yeah. So basically, you have this whole party that you can build based off of the radiance theme. Oh, there's the celestial warlock. Oh yeah, celestial warlock. And in all reality, reconstruction doesn't quite fit in radiance. Um, well, he kind of does. He gets some cantrips and spells from the cleric spell list. That's why I fit him in there. So does the Celestial Warlock, which is why he's in there. 
Kalkowski's name is Celestial. So, you were able to build this party of radiant uh, fighters, and the reason why that party is so overpowered is because every single radiant subclass has some form of healing for the most part. I don't think the Celestial war, uh, celestial um, Sorcerer does. Sun Soul. Oh, the Sun Soul Monk is the other one. Oh, the Monk, yes. The Monk and the Sorcerer don't necessarily have healing, but the rest of them pretty much do. I thought and the Monk so, had like a laying on hand type mm, thing. Not that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the Way of Atonement. Oh, yeah. Um, or Empathy. Uh, they So, basically, all of them are able to heal, and then all of them are also able to deal radiant damage. And nothing is resistant or and, immune to radiant damage. Unless you are a Celestial Warlock or an Angel. And you usually don't fight those when you're, if you're a Celestial. If you're a Celestial-themed party, you're going to be hunting demons, and some of which have vulnerability to radiance, which means you are dealing a ton of damage to these poor guys. Especially if you roll a critical with a divine smite of fourth level. Yes. So third level. Really, um, I love themed parties. The other themed party I've done is a bunch of um, was a dragon fighting. Yeah, a dragon hunter group. That one was really good too. They all were heavy hitters built around fighting one single opponent and dealing massive damage to that opponent, and it went really well. Um, other than that, uh, I do enjoy having, in that particular dragon fighting group, Alan and I combined, um, a monk with a fighter, so that his monk could get around and my fighter could get up close, and we could always have the ability to flank, giving us, using the optional rule, giving us advantage. And if you are familiar with monk and fighter, you know that they hit a lot. They're, they make... Uh, both of them can make four attacks at max level. Um, monks can make four attacks at fifth level, but I digress. Yeah. So, they're both making four attacks on either side of the dragon or any other creature, which means that they both have advantage. That means they're going to hit most of the time, even with high armor class. So, that's why the Dragon Slayer party also worked really well. Yeah. I... Coordinating is awesome, but doesn't <coughs> work too well for roleplay. Roleplay. Well, if you're going sort of so theme-based groups isn't very good for roleplay. It could be, but it's really good for metamaxing. Yeah. Coordinating things like Mirth and Garnet, where they're brother and sister, I think is an awesome aspect. Um, Zestra and Gilgal were also sort of coordinated, where Zestra has just been following Gilgal all over the place. So there's that little bit of coordination. I honestly didn't know hardly anything coming into the campaign. It was like, okay, we've got a pirate brother and sister, there are tieflings, we got a drow, and we got a minotaur. With a little bit of backstory, and that's all I knew coming into this campaign. So I had to come up with this idea of how to get them together. So the, that whole part was my idea, terrible idea, but it got them together <laughs> in cells. But that's beside the point. So how to coordinate? If your characters want to, if your players want to coordinate, 
let them coordinate. I think it's a lot of fun to be able to tag team things. Another big thing about coordinating is it's nice to have coordination between a experienced player and a non-experienced player. Um, and I've done this multiple times where I'll be in a group where we're doing like a one shot and they'll have everyone build, okay, you need a character this level. And so um, I take multiple people under my wing and just be like, okay, what do you want to be? And I'll help you build it the best you can. Or I'll give you plenty of suggestions on what I would do to make this character super um, good at what we're supposed to be fighting. Especially when the DM tells you exactly what you're fighting. Because then you can, you know, combine your Forge Cleric with a Fighter with a Dragon Slayer. So, you do a lot of damage. Yeah, ain't that the truth. But yes. I do believe that it makes for good roleplay when you have party members that are already um, in coordination and their characters' backstories are linked in the past, um, and it makes it a lot easier so that you have less reason for why they're sticking together. They're already friends from before they became adventurers, and so it makes it easier on the DM, um, but it also helps if the DM's in on the helping of the backstory making. I think that's something Merlin has done really well with our party um, that we I'm doing with him is that he makes sure to keep up on asking us questions on our backstories and what we want to do in the future with our characters. Mm-hmm. Very true. So last question, super simple from Merlin. Who is your favorite character you made using only the player's handbook? Only the player's handbook. Have I ever made a character just using the player? Oh, Evocation Wizard. Okay, so... <laughs> my original character, his name is Zokar. Um, you might end up seeing him in the future. Um, it'll be long in the future, at the rate we're going. Um, but he's an Evocation Wizard. Uh, originally, he was made on the Sword Coast. But I'm taking the character and moving him into Keljaru just so that we can... Um, keep all of our characters on one planet and make it so that we can have more history on this world. Anyways, he's, yeah, just an evocation wizard that um, is built around power and he has a bit of a thirst for power but has learned from adventuring with a party and the importance of friendship and he has gained this great care and desire to protect his friends. Um, to the point where he makes clones of himself so that he doesn't have to worry about dying um, and leaving his party alone. My favorite character that I've made, I've only made one true character out of the player's handbook. Only one. And it was Tordet. Oh yeah. He was a paladin <coughs> of the Ancients. The only one I've made out of a player's handbook. Is it considered the most powerful paladin? It is the most powerful paladin. Considered. Considered, yes. I think Oath of Vengeance is pretty good. Yeah, but he was a mountain dwarf traveling with an elf and uh, a tabaxi and a human. And 
So Russell's elf was a reconstruction elf, high wealth elf, and we were just, we would go at it. It was like a total Legolas Gimli type thing. We would trip each other, cast spells on each other, just whatever to make each other miserable. But we just enjoyed playing out this dwarf and elf relationship that was just so funny. And he was awesome to play, hit really hard, had a lot of help, had so much help. Um, it was awesome. And he was a craftsman, so we crafted all of our weapons, magically imbued all of our weapons. Like, it was an awesome party. I loved playing Tordek. He was a, he was a good character. Overall, I'm not like a... I mean, I'm not against all the subclasses in the player's handbook, but I just, I'm really into, um, new stuff. Which is why I couldn't help but buy into Talk to the Cauldron, because it gave so many more subclasses that it just gives me so many more options to play around with. Like, like I said, I, I love the player's handbook and all the subclasses in it, but when it comes to wizards, I solo only evocation and reconstruction at this point. Necromancers are cool. I don't like any of the others. Um, and then warlocks, I'll probably only I would probably only other one besides celestial that I'll play is probably ever going to be a hexblade. I just love the fact that celestial warlocks can heal, so it comes in handy. Uh, I have nothing against the subclasses in the player's handbook, but we've got what like six books that have other subclasses, six, seven books of them, and so when we sit down to make a character, we can, instead of like, this is close to what I want, we can dive in and find exactly what we want, and if we can't find exactly what we want, we create our own subclass, pretty much, of what we want, mm -hmm. or class altogether, I've done that myself. Yeah, we've built classes, we've built subclasses, it's... Or, if, you know, that's not able to do it quite well without becoming overpowered, another thing we do is just make magic items or spells that allow us to do the things that we want to do. Oh, yeah. I enjoy making magic items. I enjoy making spells, if I would take the time to do it more often. Also, my I love making spells. Yours are inconveniences. I have maybe two damaging spells out of, like, ten or fifteen spells that I've made. I only have two damage <clears throat> spells. All the other ones are mere inconveniences. I would hate if any of my players used them on my bad guys. Like, they'll just suck. <laughs> yeah, anyway. <laughs> Wait, would you hate more if your spells were used on your guys or my spells? I'd have to look at your spells. I've got some really inconvenient spells. <laughs> yeah, mine are just heavy hitters. Yours are heavy hitters, but mine are just like... My spells involve a lot of math, that's why I doubt anyone's going to use them. See, but. I would rather <clears throat> my giant demons to be hit a lot, rather than stunned a lot. Or teleported? Or teleported, which, which will not happen. Ever again. Not that they know. Yes. You won't, just know that it does happen, and it shouldn't have. Yes. That's okay, though. You must die, didn't it? Oh, there we go. <laughs> My mouse fell asleep. Okay, thank you for watching. Subscribe. Watch all of our other videos. They're coming out twice a week. Let us know if you have any other questions. 
Let us know your thoughts on the resistance and immunity of liches and any other creature that you can think of in anti-magic films. We will post this one on the Facebook specifically so that you can see that and comment on it. So, have a great day. We love you. And end stream.